All right. Well, welcome to the eSports podcast today. I am your guest host, Dr. Stacey Gonzalez. I'm filling in today for Mr. Jerry Sanchez. Sanchez and I will be having a little discussion later about me being his co-host today and then being the main host, but I'm super excited because we have a really awesome guest for you on today's episode, Justin M. Jacobson. Justin is an entertainment and esports attorney. He's a professor, and he's also an author of The Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming. So I'm super excited today to welcome our guest, Justin. Hi, Justin. How are you doing? I'm great. You know, thanks so much for having me. So glad that you're here today. And we're going to have a lot of fun uh, in this conversation. And I don't know a ton about esports, so you're really going to help uh, enlighten us and our audience today. So before we begin, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so, you know, as your intro included, I'm an esports and entertainment attorney here in New York City. And for the last decade, I've worked with musicians and DJs and fashion designers and professional athletes and handling all their business and legal matters. And I've also really expanded into the esports and gaming space, working with professional gamers and streamers and coaches and casters and teams and just other companies operating in the space. I also run Ford Models, um, newly created esports and gaming talent division that was created under their digital influencer platform. And in that capacity, I handle the day-to-day management and development of 20 different gaming talents, including pro gamers and streamers and coaches and casters. And I'm also teaching an esports business class at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and we'll be teaching some other classes this upcoming fall. That sounds like you're really busy. Yeah, you know what? It's nice is there's a lot of synergy between everything I'm doing. Yeah, and it's and it seems like you've got a whole bunch of different areas that you're really tapping into around the around the esports industry. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of going on here. You know, people don't really think about what goes on beyond maybe the professional scene, the Fortnite, League of Legends stuff that you hear. There's so much going on in college and high school, and you know, just every other level. So it's important to kind of be familiar and operate in those areas. Yeah. So you're an attorney who focuses in this area on esports, which I'd imagine there's probably not an area where there's there's a lot of people going into that field right now, is there? Yeah, I would say that, you know, kind of when I got in about five years ago, there was probably only about three or four people that were really kind of doing it in the last few years. It's kind of been a new trend. There's like the Esports Bar Association that was created. And I know some bigger law firms are starting to build out their own kind of gaming division. So it's starting to become more the norm, but it's definitely not as prevalent as most other areas of the law. So how did you get into esports? And did you think when you went into law, that was the area you were going to focus on? Um, Well, yeah, so I kind of really started in the esports and got into that after I was in the music and traditional sports world. So I've always been a big gamer, always love, you know, video computer games. I, you know, play NBA 2K probably like every day. And really it's been a part of, you know, my social interactions for as long as I can remember. So I've always been involved in the entertainment world. And once I kind of really understood what was going on in esports at this really high level, I just noticed the people that were doing it and, as I mentioned, there's only a few of them 
that were actively out there. And I noticed there's a lot of similarities between them. They're all pretty much kind of born and bred esports, and they didn't really kind of come from this more traditional entertainment world that I had come from. And I was able to kind of come in and bring a different angle and knowledge base and kind of skill set and network. And now a few years later, I'm starting to see a lot of the synergy between the music and the sports and the fashion that I've kind of came from and esports and gaming. So it's been nice to work with some, you know, professional athletes that are gamers and helping them kind of come into the scene and do it properly. So it's been nice to kind of use my previous experience working with professional athletes and understanding how to speak to them and what makes them go and how you have to engage with them. Cause you can't just be bombarding them with text messages and emails. It's you got to have a certain flair and pizzazz to talking to them. Mm. And it's always something that you learn over time because, you know, especially a high end player, they're not used to people telling them what to do all the time. So it's, you have to kind of learn to toe the line between you advising and helping them. And, you know, as you mentioned before on air, kind of laying the law, I mean, you have to do what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? Right. Like that is, you know, you kind of, you said massaging that message or is it, do you find it's like, and I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm going to use this playing up to their ego. Is that it? Is it, is it, you know, how do you kind of, how do you know what that is? How does that, what does that sound and look like for you? I mean, I think everyone's different. So I think you have to kind of know who they are. And I think that having that individual approach is like, okay, well, I know certain people, you got to just hype them up a little bit and they'll get into it. Certain people need a little bit more convincing and, you know, it's all about timing where if like, if I just emailed you something yesterday, I'm probably not going to email you something again the next day that doesn't have to do with making you money. You know, you have to balance your friendly, okay, we'll do this interview. Will you be on this podcast, et cetera? with, hey, what about this opportunity? What do you think about this? And I think that that's kind of something you learn just dealing with people because everyone is different and that's what makes it unique and exciting. Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any good stories about that? Anything that stands out to you over the years of, as you've worked with other people and you've learned how to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I learned early was I did this big NBA draft party and we had a bunch of different NBA players and prospects there and Pretty much I was spent like probably like a half hour talking to an NBA player just about, you know, getting to know him, whatever. And all the while I didn't realize that I should have really been just talking to his, you know, his boy that was sitting across the way in the same table that like, that's where all the business would go through. That's who I should be talking to because the player just wanted to worry about playing basketball and doing what he had to do. He wasn't as involved in some of these other decisions, especially early on. So something I learned later when I started to engage with more to try to identify those people, the people that were actually the direct connection to the athlete, the people that would get them to, you know, do certain things, be certain places. And that's just something you learn over time. Yeah, that's a great point. How are you seeing esports athletes? And are they called are they called first of all, are they called esports athletes? Do we call them esports athletes? Yeah, you can call them that, or you know, I call them professional gamers. I think that's a app title sure appropriate right so professional gamers who do they have around them as their quote-unquote handlers i mean a lot of it and something i've noticed just kind of coming in from this more traditional entertainment world where everyone knows oh you need a lawyer you need an agent you need a manager like that's just what's ingrained into you a lot of these gamers maybe you know 17 18 years old 20 years old they're not that familiar with it. It's not really kind of part of what they know. So a lot of them 
I might be the first attorney or manager or agent that any of them are ever talking to. They may never have had an attorney before. So like just understanding how that process works, how you engage with them and you teach essentially, like I said, kind of teaching the talent how to do this because it's really new to them. So I think that's something that I've kind of noticed is just how unsophisticated in the business world a lot of these pro gamers are. And a lot of it is just because they're just not exposed to it. And it's really all new uncharted territory for them. And is it because they're so young as well when they, when they start? Yeah, I think that is just like a lot of the people around them might not be exposed to it. You know, if you're not growing up with, you know, professional and you know, attorney and accountant, you know, someone who's kind of dealing with this high level business stuff, someone in finance, you might not be that familiar with, Oh, you have to form an LLC to do a business and you can get these certain tax write-offs associated with streaming. You have to trademark your gamer tag the same way you would your artist name or your company name. So it's just like a lot of these people might just not be exposed to some of this. Sure. That makes sense. So, so somebody comes in and they want to work with you or they need to work with you. Um, what does that, what does that look like um, as you start to engage in, in relationship and how do you help a professional gamer? Yeah, you know, so what's nice about esports law is it kind of entails a bunch of different legal fields where, you know, contract law, intellectual property, you know, primarily copyright and trademark and some visa and immigration stuff and tax law and just really kind of the intersection of all these business matters. And you kind of start by seeing what they're trying to do and find out where they're at. You know, some players are just starting or some players might have an offer on the table and some have been doing it for a while and okay, well now I'm finally ready to take it seriously and go to the next level. So the first thing is really kind of identify where they're at and what they're trying to do. Once you understand what their goal is, why they're kind of here, you can then kind of chart the path. And I think that that's like the thing about these industries is everything is based on the specific individual or their client. It's not really this is for everybody. It's a lot more tailored specifically to them. And if you're tailoring it to, to that individual, right, where are you getting, where are clients entering with you and where are you seeing their trajectory for their professional careers, right? So can you, can you kind of outline, I'm 19 or, you know, when do they come to you? Uh, because this industry is so new and just exploding and people are, it's kind of one of those industries, not, not that new, but right. We're building it as we go, as it scales. So what does it look like when somebody comes to start working for you and what's the potential there? Yeah. I mean, you know, we kind of work with players of all ages. Like I've talked with 16 and 17 year olds with their parents on the phone, going through these major deals. And it's just, that's what it is. You just have to understand that you're talking to the talent, but you're also talking to the parent and you want to make sure that the, you know, the, the under the minor for all intents and purposes is involved in it and feels like this is something they're comfortable with and they want to do it and they're engaged with it because they don't want to feel like it's something that their parents are in charge of. You know, this is their career and you want them to feel like they're part of it so that they are invested in it and then they take it more seriously. And, you know, I think that a lot of the intake is referrals. I would say the best people are people that either see you on, you know, these podcasts or other players or coaches that are doing it in the space. I would say people just reaching out to you on DMs or LinkedIn is pretty rare. They're usually looking for a specific person with knowledge. And that usually comes from another person that they know. And 
I think you'll see a lot of top players using similar people because someone else they know knows them and it's just kind of go to who everyone else goes to. Yeah. And that, you know, we talked about that before the show relative to when we have a network, we're more likely to refer other people, work with people, and it kind of becomes this closed system of individuals that are all supporting each other. And, and you kind of probably are finding, you find out who's who in the business, right? I mean, that's just, that's any industry. Um, what are you seeing though, relative to esports and its growth? You know, you mentioned 16, 17 year olds, um, and then you said older, and I'm certain it's not older, like my age older, um, because my understanding is it's the, it's the younger generation of, of kids that, that have that hand-eye coordination, that they age out of esports after a certain amount of time. Is that, am I correct in that? Am I off on that? Is that- yeah, no, I would say, you know, when I'm thinking about older, I'm talking about, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22, <laughs> yeah. like, like by 25, 26, or even 30, unless you've established such a dominancy or like, even if they see it in the NFL, as you kind of get to your thirties for a lot of players, you're not as fast, you're not as, you know, agile as you might've been, but you pick up other ways to still be competitive. You get more focused on strategy and how you could do individual matchups and kind of that's where your experience and that like veteran leadership comes in where it's like, okay, maybe I'm not the super sniper I used to be, but I still know how to direct when we're enough, you know, under fire and pressure. And, you know, I've been on this big stage competing for hundreds of thousands, not millions of dollars. And I can handle that pressure. I understand flying to another country and then having to go play games at a high level a couple hours later. So I think that you can kind of use this experience that you've gained if you've done it the right way to kind of stay still active in your later years. But ultimately, as you mentioned, your hand-eye coordination reduces, your ability to do certain things just degrades over time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, law, like what you're doing, other industries that surround that esports world, I'm imagining are the areas where players can turn for that second career, something, you know, potentially um, in, in a different field, but around this industry. Yeah. You know, there's definitely been a trend of, you know, former players maybe becoming coaches or analysts or just essentially working for teams whether it's a sponsorship or even like a player management capacity, because you kind of understand the stresses and the anxiety that the players are going through. You get the grind. You kind of came from the same place they did. And maybe they even look up to you because you might've achieved a certain level of fame. And then you also have people that are kind of in these ancillary business world. Like I know accountants and wealth management people and, you know, data analytics companies and anything you can imagine, marketing agencies and PR agencies, people that are solely focused on the esports and gaming segment, working with these individuals and essentially being able to kind of come from this world where you might have a lot of connections and then use some other real world skills or knowledge to grow. And I think that's kind of what you saw with a lot of the, you know, attorneys that were in esports, they were probably former players, a lot of their clients are former friends that they played with or team owners that they knew. And it was just kind of grew from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. 
right? That's amazing how you continue to build. And I would imagine as this industry is growing and booming, you're going to have so much more opportunity, even from where you're a young man, right? Like even from where you're at and your career, as you are growing in an industry that just has so much potential. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's exciting. And, you know, I think something else that we're you know, it was really important to me is how it's kind of moving into you know the more academic space and higher education and, you know, how, whether it's high schools or middle schools and now colleges and other universities, whether it's, you know, U.S. and abroad are starting to incorporate esports in some fashion into their campus life. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and I want to talk about that education piece. So we're back from our break. And as you know, I'm Dr. Stacey Gonzalez, bringing you the Add Up Esports podcast today. And guess who is with us? Mr. Jerry Sanchez back from the break. So glad you're here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a day. <laughs> I know. I know. That's why I just said, let's rock and roll, because I know you're my buddy and this is how we do. So um, anyways, so Justin, as we were, we're, we're going to start, I want to start scratching that surface because for me, something I'm really interested in is education. And I am at, spent my entire career as a high school teacher, administrator, built out esports programs in our buildings, right? And, and when we did that, I said, I want these things outfitted. Like I want the chairs, I want the screens, I want the, the, the screens all over the walls. And the reason was for me was because many of my students who were not the kids who were going to be in football or baseball or three sport athlete athletes, those were my esports kids. And I felt it was really important to have a place where those kids could also get connected and feel very much a part of the community, right? So I'd like you to share a little bit with us about um, where you think education fits into this industry. And you can talk about it from, you know, that high school perspective, like where I, where I lived at, or even what you're seeing in, in higher ed. So maybe take us through, you know, what it looks like for kids in high school into the potential in higher ed. Yeah. I mean, I think that what's nice about esports and, you know, gaming in general is it's really applicable to all ages. You know, obviously there are different titles that are more appropriate for different age groups, but the fact of competitive gaming and, the socialization you get from it really kind of applies from all levels and all ages. So you have, you know, middle school leagues where you're 13 or 14 years old and you're playing games against, you know, other high schools or middle schools or just other people in recreational leagues. I think that same way you have the little league or the soccer intramurals that you grew up with, there's going to be League of Legends and Dota too. And that's going to be part of everyone's childhood growing up. And then it kind of leads to high school where you, it's starting to mimic traditional sports where you actually have high schools competing against other high schools in different games, the same way you would in football or basketball. And, you know, different schools are taking it more serious than others where they're actually investing in top equipment and making sure their players are actually breaking down film and learning and having coaches that maybe can give them a bit more insight because, it's like you said, there's a bunch of people that this is really what they love and to see a school embracing it and kind of giving them the opportunity to shine, I think is one of the, the most important things of it is, like you said, maybe you're not going to be all American quarterback, but you could be the all American League of Legends mid laner, or, you know, the top Rocket League goal scorer. And that's just as prestigious to a lot of people. 
So I think that as you kind of move up the ladder, it kind of goes into college and universities where different schools are bringing it in different levels. You have kind of just the intramural sports club or it's like a bunch of friends that are playing against other clubs or just in general. And then it kind of grows to more of this competitive where you're going against other schools and you're in different leagues. And the same way you have Penn State playing Ohio State in football, you have them playing each other in Rocket League or Call of Duty or Madden. So it's starting to kind of mimic that. Then you also have universities that have kind of actually incorporated into their actual classes. You have some schools that just have standalone courses and some actually have minors where you can take a bunch of different classes in and some have even developed majors such as you know Shenandoah University and University of Oklahoma is actually doing some pretty you know remarkable stuff where they have a shout casting program which is where they're actually teaching the next set of broadcasters for esports um, broadcasts and just seeing other schools creating certificate programs and trying to be involved in some fashion. I like that. You actually went over academic integration and talk about this a lot, but the idea of, of, of bringing in students and administrators from, from all age groups in, in terms of elementary school, middle schools, and high schools. Um, I'd like to kind of pick your brain about how important it is to include the parents in the conversation or should this really just be for kind of like that elementary school, middle school? Oh, you definitely need the parents. I mean, there's actually a, an organization, the Coalition of Parents in Esports, which was founded by a few parents of pretty well-known top, you know, young gamers. And as a way to kind of be this bridge to kind of teach gamers how to speak to their parents, how to explain like, okay, after I do my homework, I can play Fortnite for two hours. And it's not just me sitting in my room by myself. It's me engaging with my friends and kind of being more supportive of it, like going to the match to watch them and supporting it the same way you would if your son was interested in football or baseball, making sure he has the right equipment, making sure he has a glove, the the new whatever hockey equipment that I always kind of had growing up. So I think it's one of these things where you need that support from the parents because it just makes it easier on them. And I think that's kind of their job is to support what is making their children happy. You know, I think that's kind of what you know i think my parents always wanted for me and what i think a lot of parents want is to support their children in something that pushes them and excites them so i think you really need their involvement and them buying in and not just seeing it as oh you're spending too many hours playing video games go outside where you know obviously there has to be a balance with all these health concerns involved but i think that you know parents approaching it from a different angle and Maybe there's, okay, you only have two hours of screen time and you can only play certain games and you can only interact with these certain group approved people that we know, whatever okay. it might be. But I think without it, it it's never going to really achieve what it could. I'm obviously, I'm obviously not a parent yet. I, I will be soon, maybe like four, four or five years from now. But um, I, I would have to think that, and maybe you, you can all correct me if I'm wrong, that the conversation can be a little difficult when you're looking at, traditionally rooted parents that went through like the standard educational system, right? Yeah. Well, that's a great point because that's me. I mean, I, even though, right, I had kids young and I was still, right. My kid is 20 now. I made a point to just sit and watch. And so if a parent can just sit and watch and listen, you'll notice that what they're saying on the microphones and the way they're interacting is actually requiring a lot of cognitive lift. 
And so I think, um, you know, like Justin, you mentioned that parent association, that's key for advocacy. I think the other thing too, I was, I was wondering about while you were talking, as we're thinking about higher education, we know that, um, and we've long known, right? If they offer a scholarship for boys golf, like if you have a daughter and, and you know she's got some some acumen for golf, like that might be a really good place to, to, to push or to support, if you will. Are you seeing the same type of thing? And, and where do you think higher education um, institutions are going regarding some of these topics in esports? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely a bunch of universities that are offering scholarships, whether it's, you know, competitive or, as I mentioned, University of Oklahoma, they're trying to offer additional ones to, you know, production and streamers and casters and people that want to kind of be involved on more than just the competitive side. So it's starting to be a way for gamers to kind of get money from scholarships for winning tournaments, as well as towards their actual education, where universities are giving them scholarships to play video games. And it's kind of a pretty emerging trend. And did you think that you would stay in esports, or you knew you were going to go into law? And then that just it morphed for you from other professional fields into esports? Well, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say, you know, going to law school and having that knowledge was always going to be part of whatever my journey was going to be. And you know, I definitely look back. I'm like, I don't think I would say that when I was in law school or in college that I thought I would be, you know, doing professional gaming and talking <laughs> StarCraft and Fortnite and Nintendo and Sega and all these things that I am. But I think it makes a lot of sense considering the way everything is kind of played out where there's not really a line between music and sports and fashion and art and all these different pop culture things. They've all kind of really merged into each other. You know, you have concerts in Fortnite and movies shown in Fortnite and really just every, you know, athletes and musicians playing games, signing esports teams, founding esports teams, investing in them, just really kind of starting to let that angle of them shine. Because I always knew that, you know, NFL and NBA players used to play 2K and Madden and they would have intense games and this was part of it. But now everyone sees it and it's much more of part of who they are and it's more public than it ever used to be. Well, I mean, I'd like to probably ask about some of the difficulties of institutions or organizations, and it doesn't have to be schools, it could be companies, of not taking an interest into, into, into the law side of esports, right? Um, what exactly are they losing out on? I mean, I think one of these things where if, like, if you don't do it right, it could set you up you know, in a problem. Obviously, you have potential if you don't trademark your team name or gamer tag and somebody else uses it you could have an issue and you might have to change it so that's i think a pretty obvious one but i think in terms of player signing agreements not really understanding the implications of it and kind of understanding what a contract means and kind of what the enforceability is of it and what legal maneuvers you would need to even get out of it and i just think that it's just the natural unfamiliarity with all these things and then I think because it's just so new, there was really no literature. There's really no classes the same way there's an entertainment law or sports law class at, you know, a lot of universities and law schools across the country. So is that what helped you or was an impetus for you to write the book that you wrote? Tell us a little bit about, about that work and, and where that, how that came about. Yeah. So, you know, I, have the written the essential guide to the business and law of esports and professional video gaming. And it was meant to kind of give a glimpse into the business and law of 
things that relate to esports and pro gaming. I kind of created it because I did feel there was a void, that there was just a certain lack of knowledge and it just was not as in-depth or useful as it should. These kind of books exist in the sports and entertainment world and there's nothing like it right now in the space. And I kind of saw the need for it. And realistically, there are only so many people that are doing it at this high level that could even really speak on it. And I taught, you know, music business classes earlier on in my career. So I was always involved in the academic space early on. So I kind of knew that this might be an area that I was going to get into. So I was able to kind of take some of the knowledge and information that I've kind of gained and I've realized over these years and try to bring it out into the public because at the end of the day, this information really isn't publicly available and what's out there is very all over the place and just very facial. It's like you can't find a lot of this stuff and you definitely can't find analysis of what a professional gamer contract might look like or a caster or a sponsorship deal. And I was able to kind of bring some of this to light in a very, you know, laid back in easy to digest format. Yeah. I actually, I actually want to piggyback off that because I purchased every single book, um, obviously before yours came out for esports, and I was so excited. Um, there were some books that I really thought were going to have the content that I was looking for and they're just stories and, exactly. uh, That's it, it's not like something academic that I wanted to dive in. So I started composing my own book, um, esports and higher education, where I want to do the actual breakdown of, you know, cause no one talks about the stress, uh, that, administrators or directors or, um, you know, consultants go through, they just talk about some story. And I wanted to give people kind of like, not a day to day, but kind of like a, a, a 3000 degree bird's eye view of, of, of what it is. So they can, so they can kind of see, oh, wow, these are the kind of skills and things that you need to do the people that you need to meet to have connections uh, good enough for you to do your job, right? Such as you, I'm sure you're well connected in this space because you wouldn't be able to do your job without it. Exactly. And like you said, you found that there's this missing information. And like you said, I think that the stuff that's out there, and again, I purchased a lot of it to really kind of make sure I was up on what was out there. It was nice. I think that that's good compliments to kind of what I've started to gather and put out there. But in my research, I've learned about other, you know, there's the esports research network, which is a bunch of academics that are really trying to push that side of it and getting more traditional researchers to look at esports and give it that added academic value and lens. So I think it's just kind of a trend where as more and more people see the viability of it and the long-term ramifications, more of this information is just going to be available. I love it. I love that, that you both are working, that, that you both have this idea and, and way to help the learning community and bring the knowledge that you have in such a um, evolving topic that is just moving at the speed of light relative to the way esports is, and so um, I'm I'm just wondering as you were working on that book, what what surprised you? Was there anything that surprised you or or something that came up that you're like, gosh, I hadn't even thought of that, and now I kind of saw myself going down this this path. Um, that that might be noteworthy. Yeah, I mean, I would say that as I was doing it, I really started to learn even more than I thought I did. I think that, you know, the, the kind of the initial draft that I went at it was like pretty good. And then once I really kind of went back and started to look at it from a different lens, and I really kind of made it so that it could be really teachable. I wanted it to be able to kind of be used for classes I was going to be able to teach. And 
it could just be a good guide for this information. And as I was learning, I was starting to realize, oh, well, I need to explain this. And once I started to talk about one thing, it's like, okay, well, then I need to talk about that. And it started to kind of go down this rabbit hole of, oh, I didn't even think about that as a part of this. And as you're starting to just research and starting to write it, you start coming up with new things that you didn't think about, like just the way everything is structured in this kind of business ecosystem, as I call it. True. That is absolutely so true. The same thing here. I started, I wanted to do, like I told you, like a breakdown. And then as I started writing, I said, why am I not talking about digital education and its origins? So then I started looking up and getting into, you know, digital education back in the mid 1900s. And, you know, I started going off and I was like, well, this is really good. And then I could talk about a little bit about COVID and this evolution of universities and high schools, all of a sudden everyone's at home and they got nothing else to do. And they finally, they click on that esports ad and they go, Oh, this is great. So then they all want to open one up. Cause you know, there's a huge boom of just universities wanting to open up esports program. Some with great ideas, some with healthy ideas and some that are just trying to get in it for the money, I guess, with completely wrong well, ideas. They're trying to goals. keep up with the Joneses. Cause mm-hmm. you know, the way it is, it's like, <laughs> if you don't have it, people might not, that was kind of how I've been explained to it from some admissions people where it's like, this might be the distinguishing factor that if you don't have something like this, people might choose another university that does over yours. I think it becomes increasingly difficult uh, to gauge um, the, the way that the students interact with universities. Now we saw that. Um, and I talk about all the time that the universities, they couldn't adapt to the, you know, changing circumstances. They're not out of business, which is actually quite horrible, but those that kind of stayed and evolved and, I want to thank all the administrators that are in these many universities around the U.S. that they work their butt off to maintain a level of education that equates to that of the classroom. I think now the whole the whole um, idea of online education being a, a sham is kind of down the drain. I hope it's down the drain at least, or it's on its way down the drain because that's totally not true. I think online education is um, just as effective as in, in class learning. And I don't know, maybe you can give your opinions on that from a professional's perspective. I mean, I taught this past semester was purely online class, and I've also taught in-person classes before. And I would say that the one thing I missed was the real engagement with the students. Like, I feel like no matter how Zoom and how, like, it's just not the same as having people sitting next to you and right in front of you in the Discord mm-hmm. you get in class. So I would say in terms of, you know, lecture and absorbing information, it's probably pretty similar. But in terms of the communication, the interaction between the students and you as a professor with them, like, it was just really hard to make any connections. Whereas, okay. you know, every class I've taught, I've maybe gotten clients or people that follow me and check in on, and it's just kind of like they're part of my network now. I felt like it was a lot harder to try to do that when you were remote. I guess you could put it that way because there's some sort of presence in the actual classroom, the, you know, the body language, um, even the sense, the lighting, you know, the air conditioning and all that kind of adds puts everyone in the same location, not just physically, but also mentally. And I think, yeah, you're right. I, I don't think we can actually replicate that, which could potentially present some issues when we're, we're trying to learn something that's in a relatively new industry where we all want to be like-minded. Yeah. And I think that, you know, those who were doing online education before the pandemic, I don't know that it's fair, right? I don't know that it's a fair um, pandemic online education and those who were just thrown into it versus those who were trained to build those social connections and emotional supports that must be normed in and developed. And that is a totally different type of skill set and pedagogy that teachers use 
when they're teaching online versus someone who's used to, you know, teaching in a, a face-to-face format. So um, I think we're going to see certainly a lot of, of shift and change in that, in that realm. Uh, but people, I think, are hungry to get back in person, but they're not going to want what they, I don't think they're going to want what they wanted um, in, in the same way. There's going to be things that they're going to say, we don't need to do that in person. Like you can outsource that to, to some sort of, you know, synchronous, I can do it on my own. I can, I can get in there, whatever, you know, and I think it's going to look a little different. <laughs> I'll let, I'll, I'll, I'll let Stacy kind of take Ron uh, uh, our last couple of questions, but yeah, I got right. one for you here before before Stacy drops hers. And I'm I'm very interested. I'm very interested when it comes to amateur esports organizations. How important is it to kind of get in touch with someone like you, whether it's for a consultation or a conversation, and really kind of get to know how things function from the ground up in terms of legality? Because in terms of incorporating their company, in terms of where should they, they should incorporate it, their uh, you know investment capital, whether they're looking to take out loans, their contract development, if you do some of that. Uh, walk us through some of this because I worked with a lot of amateur orgs and the idea behind them is that they have this idea, but not a clear goal in mind, just an idea that that they, they kind of want, they want to reach for the stars, but um, they don't want a ladder. They kind of want to take the elevator. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, they call it the esports business for a reason that you have to approach it like a business and approach it that way with that mentality. And I think once you kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to do this for real, I'm going to put the time and the resources into it, you need to do things the right way. And, you know, I kind of use this in the music world. It's like, yeah, it's really hard to break in just like it is in esports. But if you don't do the right things from the beginning, the chances and you do get successful, let me tell you the headaches and the cost that's going to be at that point. You know, the worst thing is to be successful and not to have done it right. And I think it's one of these things where you see players maybe signing an agreement where they don't really understand what they're saying. And only when it actually matters, when things go wrong or they actually have to look at it, does it matter? And like, I've looked at players agreements where I'm just like, how did you sign this? And like, they're just like, Oh, like everyone else was doing it. And the team just said to go. And I'm just like, okay, that's great. But how did you and why did you sign this? And it's just kind of interesting that they don't really have an answer. And it was just kind of like, they just did it. And I think that when you're doing this, whether it's amateur or you know professional level, you need to approach it seriously and understand that, yeah, if you're doing business, you might need a corporation. There might be benefits to it. You might not understand how these write-offs work. But if you talk to an accountant, he will explain that, yeah, if you're a streamer, you could buy a new webcam or a new graphics card, and that could be a recoupable expense. The editors you're using could be recoupable expenses. The game you're playing on stream could be a recoupable expense. But if you never think about it and you never approach it properly, it's going to be hard to kind of play catch-up or to do it. And I think that's kind of my thought process on it is if you're going to do it, you might as well do it right. Yeah. So if if you're thinking about this body of work, this esports, and there's a lot of people out there who are interested in and dipping their toe in possibly in a small way or maybe even in a huge way, someone who has a lot of capital, right? Someone who sees this as an investment opportunity, looking in to get into this business. Um, what should they be looking for and how might they start? Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of like two kind of approaches to an esports org or a team. You kind of have the more competitive focus where it's like we need to win tournaments and place at the top, and that's how we're kind of built. And then you have this more entertainment kind of content focus where it's like we need to get impressions and have a vibe and people need to know us and 
brand exposure and notoriety. And that's what we focus on. And, you know, I think that when you're kind of looking at an investment, you need to kind of understand that, yeah, a team competing, having the best League of Legends team or Dota team, whatever is valuable, but what else do they have? I think you need to look beyond competing and how they do in competitions because there's so much in flux, especially just the way the game works and the meta that you can't control as many things as you can in that world. And I think you need to look at other things, what other income they have, whether they have unique merch, do they have content creators also? So they're not just solely focused on how well their CSGO or Overwatch team does. They maybe have a training facility or other property investments. You know, you have different organizations that are actually creating gaming facilities and training camps and youth camps and these other ancillary properties that is just not based on success on the you know digital field, as they say. It's not just based on having a franchise slot. There's other income streams available, and that kind of hedges your bet. And I think to me, that's one of the most important things is do they have a content house or some other kind of gaming house that can be branded? And how do you involve the brands that you're working with? Do they have these other platforms? And if you're just competing in tournaments, that's really the only time you're going to get exposure. You're not going to have these other availabilities where you maybe have streamers 24 seven, where you just kind of have Monday through Friday, people on different times and they're just always producing content based on where they live. And that's how you get exposure to everyone you're working with. So I think you need to look at what the organization is doing beyond just their on-field performance. Yeah, I just thought about it now. <laughs> Before Stacey goes off, I'm gonna. I want to ask because um, to me and to many other people in the space, it feels as if esports organizations and companies are solely carried by sponsorship capital. It, it, do you think it's true that esports is kind of like consumed? by by sponsorship that it's kind of inflated by it like it's dependent on it i mean i think there's some stat that like maybe 60 or 70 percent of most esports teams their income is through that through sponsorship and partnerships i think it's kind of a combination of it's really the low-hanging fruit because it's like okay well we could put your logo on our jersey and on our stream and we can do tweets and we can do contests and we we can do all this stuff that's already very easily available to us and I think then it also comes with the kind of brands that are involved is they just have so much money, a lot of them. So it's just kind of like writing a five, six figure check is just kind of standard operating procedure as long as everything else checks out. So I think it makes sense that that's where a lot of it comes from. But if you look at other industries, a lot of it comes like that too, where I would say in the music world, most the big musicians, Jay-Z's, Drake's, Lady Gaga's, Beyonce's, like their Pepsi deals and their adidas and nike and Foot Locker deals are probably more lucrative than what they're making from record sales you know and it's just kind of that's what it's changed to where a brand partnership has so much more value than selling albums and then as a brand partner you could be on their tour you can do all kinds of stuff leveraging their fan base and i think it's just kind of maybe it you know because i guess the uncertainty of the performance it kind of goes back to that where it's like you can't get the LeBron James and all these other five amazing people that are so much faster and stronger than everyone else. Gaming kind of levels that playing field a little bit. Yeah, there are players that are much better than others, but the difference between the top, top players is very negligible. Whereas you go to these, you know, sports where it's like LeBron James is 6'11", you know, fast as, you know, can run from one side to the other in a, in a single leap. 
You know, it's pretty much Superman on the basketball court. And there's really no equivalent to that in gaming. Everything's a lot more balanced. Yeah, that make, that makes total sense. And I think that, you know, the, the sponsorships are big. I, I wonder where, you know, given the state of um, cryptocurrency, NFTs, some of those other pieces that are kind of, you know, exploding on the scene um, right now and where we're at with technology, it'll be interesting to see where it um, connects with the, the business that you're doing. Well, yeah, you know, to kind of bring it all together, you say NFTs, that makes me smile. And, you know, <laughs> I really think that there's a lot of unique stuff that, you know, gaming and esports is already doing in the space from, you know, different teams offering digital collectibles or a big stream like Tifu offering, you know, NFTs linked to bobbleheads and other, you know, branded in digital items. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity there for teams to build. And we're definitely going to see, more teams like 100 Thieves offering digital merchandise and who knows where else it goes. Yeah, there's so much potential. See, you boys didn't know that I knew that, <laughs> did you? Yeah, I didn't know that you knew. I remember when Tensa was at $22 and, and it was my first stock and, and I just got with my wife that she wasn't my wife at the time seven years ago and and I told her, I'm going to put in a lot of money in Tensa. She's like, why? I'm like, because they just bought right games and I'm, and I'm putting in the money. Now it's like at 70 plus. And I have 25 different securities, only in esports, because I'm only going to invest in what I know, right? I'm not going to invest in something I don't know. And th that's the way that I run it. But um, again, I, I, and I think um, me and Stacey always like asking this question close to the end. And it's, what do you feel is the future of esports law specifically to what you're doing and how it's going to kind of like uh, engage all the other areas of law, which I'm unaware about, by the way, I do not know much about law, but everyone always told me I would have been a good lawyer. So tell us a little bit about what you feel the future of law is going to be like in the esports industry. I mean, I think a lot of it, because it's so new, is really just developing. I think that a, there's just not that many people really doing it at that high level, and you can't really find a lot of this information. Like, you can't find a player deal the same way you can a record deal or a publishing deal or the NFLPA approved agreement. So a lot of this information isn't really out there and isn't known unless you're doing it. Like if you're doing, you know, major tier one deals all the time, like I am, you've seen a lot of different orgs agreements. You've negotiated them. You understand what you can ask for, what they're willing to give up, you know, what other people are getting paid and what their deals look like and kind of gives you a sense of what the market is like. So I, I think as it continues to develop, there'll just be more certainty about, what's going on in it and more people understand the value of it. Like, you know, even in the book to kind of bring that in is there's a section kind of talking about the benefits of trademarking or gamer tag or team name. And it's more than just explaining the benefits. I went into explaining, Hey, look, all of these superstar people that you know are doing it, Ninja and Tifu and Nick Merckx and Dr. Disrespect and PewDiePie and all these people that are making millions of dollars. Hey, they have trademarks in their name, you know, Shroud and Courage JD people, you know, Hey, they have trademarks. And then on the flip side, you know, Team Envy and Optic and Immortals and FlyQuest and Cloud9, they have trademarks in their names. And it's just kind of showing people like, hey, this is a real thing. And everyone is doing it at this really high level. So if you want to potentially go that way and that's part of your journey, hey, this is probably something you should do. And here's why. And here's who else is doing it. And that information is going to be transparent, you believe, in the future, as well as all this information as well, correct? Well, I mean, I started with it. You know, I, there definitely might be a few people that might not be as pleased with some of the information. I tried to siphon it down and make it as 
generic as possible, but there's just certain language that after years and hundreds of contracts in it, it's almost industry custom and trade at that point. And, you know, these are kind of things that are above certain confidentiality things where if it's so publicly available and so known, how is it still confidential? You know, I'm excited because most of the things today I've only skim through the surface of them and i've never dove into it like today so we want to go ahead and thank you justin this is justin m jacobson esquire entertainment and esports attorney professor and author of the essential guide to the business and law of esports and professional video gaming book you can check that out online at jacobsonfirm.com and be sure to catch him on his twitter at justin j esq for any other questions and comments you can go ahead and message him there or you can come on here on the Ed Up esports on either the twitter or the linkedin or even the facebook if you're into that and we'll talk about it